During the past group of months, we've been looking through uh, the book of Romans, and so we're going to continue our study of the book of Romans today. And today we've made it, we're all the way up to chapter 11 now of the book of Romans. And we're going to be looking at chapter 11, starting with verse 1 today, and we're going to go down to verse 16. And as we do this today, we're going to be talking about the fact that not everyone will believe, but some will. Now, I don't know if that sounds optimistic or pessimistic to you, But that's what this Scripture teaches. That's what we're taught here in Romans chapter 11. The fact that not everyone will believe, but some will. And I think it gives us reason for optimism. Now, because this is a little bit of a longer section, I'm not going to read the whole thing for starters here. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take a look at this a section at a time. But again, in Romans 11, verses 1 through 16, it shows us the fact that the Lord is working in the hearts of many people throughout the course of time to draw them unto Himself. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word, and thank You for the privilege that You've given us today to be able to pause and to take some time to study it together. And Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of Scripture, a portion that is found in a segment of Scripture that that speaks a lot about Your plan of salvation and how You're drawing people unto Yourself. We pray, Lord, that we would understand these truths. We pray that we would appreciate them. And we pray that we would grow as we take a look at what Your Word communicates. Likewise, Father, we pray that we be encouraged as we look at this portion of Scripture here today, because it can be very easy at times to be discouraged when there are people that we know and people that we love who have, as of yet, not come to faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ. But then we look at this portion of Scripture today and You remind us that things happen in Your season and things happen in Your timing and You're working all things together for good for those who know You, for those who love You. And you're drawing people unto yourself. And so, Lord, we're grateful for the work that you're accomplishing. It's fascinating to think about the broad view that you have as you're operating throughout the course of history. So we commit this time to you now, Lord, and we're thankful for the privilege to be able to study your word. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever felt um, somewhat alone? as you lived out your faith. You ever had a, have a season like that where you just kind of feel like you're on your own? You just kind of feel somewhat alone as you're living out your faith in Christ. Or maybe, do you ever feel like you're just kind of part of a, a small subset of people who actually trust in Jesus and are seeking to be obedient to His teaching? And I ask that because it, it's, it's quite relevant to the Scripture that we're looking at today because If we feel that way, we're not alone in that kind of experience. We're not the only people that have felt that way throughout the course of history. In fact, that feeling is somewhat common, and uh, many of us will experience seasons where that feels all too real. But the truth of the matter is that God's plan is much bigger. Uh, It's bigger in scope. It's bigger in consequence than many of us often realize. And it's certainly bigger than we often think about in the midst of seasons where maybe we're a little bit discouraged in how that plan is unfolding because our patience level sometimes isn't what it ought to be. And the way it's often been described, and I like this analogy, we see the part of the parade that's right in front of our face, 
But yet God, as He's accomplishing His grand scheme, His grand work, He sees the beginning and the middle and the end of the parade from His perspective, and He's ultimately directing things and working things out to bring Him glory and to be for the good of His people, as He sees all these things taking place at the same time. And, you know, as we're talking about this idea of salvation, as we're looking at what Romans 9 said about it and what Romans 10 said about it, and now in Romans chapter 11, where you could see that the Apostle Paul is using these three chapters to really explain the details of what God is doing as he draws people unto himself, we can see that there are plenty of people who will never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that certainly grieves our hearts. But then there's the optimistic side of things when we look at a portion of Scripture like this that tells us that, yeah, even though there are some that won't, there are also some who will. In fact, there are more who will trust in Christ than we may initially realize. And that's the subject you have the Apostle Paul addressing here in this portion of Scripture. And one of the things that he brings up in this passage that I want to start us off with with, is this idea that some receive salvation as an act of God's grace. Look at what he says in verses 1 through 6. He says this. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now let's pause there for just a moment. So again, in line with the questions I asked just a moment ago, have you ever gone through a particularly challenging season of life that resulted in you feeling particularly discouraged? I bring that up because the Apostle Paul, as he's illustrating some things here, he makes reference to something that took place in the Old Testament Scriptures in the book of 1 Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 19, in fact. And in 1 Kings 19, we're given a picture of a challenging season in the life of Elijah the prophet. And it was a season that left him feeling exceedingly depressed and exceedingly discouraged. In fact, the Scripture tells us that at that time, he was running for his life. He was running from uh, King Ahab. He was running from Queen Jezebel. Um, He was in conflict with them because of the ways in which he had interacted with and called judgment down upon the false prophets of Baal. And in the midst of that idolatrous culture at the time that was being led by unbelieving leaders, we have Elijah who was feeling quite alone, and and he honestly wished he was dead. Now, I don't know if you've ever come to a part of your life or a season of your life where you felt like that was the case. I do remember in seventh grade, I got a very bad report card. And I remember that was the first time in my life I ever wished I was dead. I wished, in fact, I was familiar with the theology uh, that, you know, that speaks of the Lord returning. And uh, I was like, you know what, Lord, if you could return in between now and when I have to face my parents, that would be great. I feel ready. I feel instantly ready. 
But you know, in, in that moment, I was like, and if that's not the option, just strike me dead because I don't want to have to face them. So I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life where you've said, all right, you know what, if, if right now was the finale, I'd be fine with it. But in, the, in Elijah's case, in 1 Kings 19, this is the scripture that Paul's referencing here as he's, as he's kind of building things up here in Romans 11. But Elijah actually wished he was dead. He was being chased by Queen Jezebel, King Ahab. You know, all, all of these people wanted to see him dead, and he was starting to, to feel like, you know what, it'd probably be easier for me if I was. But in the midst of that, God spoke to Elijah. And God assured him that Elijah, even though he felt alone, he wasn't alone. He wasn't alone. Even though he felt like he was all by himself, the Lord revealed to Elijah, look, you think you're the only one that still worships me. But he said, I have reserved 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 others, a remnant in that culture who still trusted in the Lord. And Elijah was bolstered up as the Lord reminded him that he was not alone. And again, that's what Paul's referencing here as he starts off this portion of Romans chapter 11. And what he's doing is he's referencing these historical events is he's demonstrating the fact that God has not rejected the people of Israel. Now, naturally speaking, particularly as we see many who persist in disbelief, it would seem justified for God to reject his people, right? But that's not his intention. Paul was certainly grateful for that fact, particularly since he was a descendant of Israel, and he loved the people he was born into. And he would try and communicate the gospel to them, and he would try and live among them, and he would try and serve them, but he would also go and reach out to the Gentiles as his own people were rejecting the gospel. But as, you know, just as the Lord had preserved a remnant of those who truly believed in him during Elijah's time, so too during Paul's era and so too during our era, there is a remnant of those who believe. Now, again, not everyone believes, but some do. And those who believe are granted salvation, not as a payment for their labors, but as a gift of grace. That's what the Apostle Paul is also stressing in this portion of Scripture. That salvation isn't given as a payment for labor, it's given as a gift of the grace of God. And in fact, this is a theme that's been illustrated several times now throughout this section of Scripture. And you could see that Paul was trying to address this because there were plenty of those in that context who mistakenly believed that they could earn the favor of God. And by the way, have you ever gone through a season of your life where you've treated the favor of God as if it's something that could be earned? I have made that mistake. I imagine I'm not the only one that's made that mistake. And here you have Paul emphasizing that the favor of God is given as an act of grace. It's not deserved. It's not earned. And so when we look at the actions and when we look at the attitudes of humanity, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we deserve nothing but judgment from God. And in the context here where Paul's using Israel as an example of that, he's speaking about the fact that Israel had turned their backs on God. Historically, they had done that, and in the context that he was in right now, they were turning their backs on God. And then Paul, elsewhere in the Scriptures, he referred to himself. And he was talking about the fact that at one time he personally lived in rebellion and disbelief. And when we look at our own lives, when I look at my own life, when you look at your own life, we too were once foreigners to the gifts of God's goodness. But by grace, God intervened. What he does is he reaches right into the chest of people with the hardest hearts 
and He softens us. And He re- reaches right into the heads of, uh, of, you know, of, of those who at one point don't see and don't believe. And He opens up our eyes and He enables us to see things that we weren't seeing. And what He does is He shows us that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved other than the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, And He makes it abundantly clear that salvation is a work that He does in our lives and that it's not a reward for work that we're doing. Grace is the undeserved favor of God. So what would we rather receive? Would we rather receive compensation for the imperfect work of our hands or would we rather receive the gift of unmerited and undeserved favor from God? That's how Paul's framing this portion of Scripture. That's how he's setting this up, because he's about to make some sub-points related to these things, and he's applying these things to the people that he loved, the people of Israel. And so he starts this portion of Scripture by reminding us that there are some people that reject the fact that salvation is by grace, but there are others who receive salvation as an act of God's grace. And he's explaining here that that's the only way it can be received. But he goes on to tell us, when you look at verses 7 down to verse 10, that some have hardened hearts. Some have hardened hearts. Look at what he says there, starting with verse 7. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. Let's pause there for a second. So the people of Israel that the Apostle Paul is referencing in these verses were those who valued the Mosaic Law. So you find the Mosaic Law in the first five books of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I have read the five books there. I was like, wait a second, I skipped one. Let me do this again. Don't ask me to do the ABCs either. I might might mess that up too. Uh, But in the first five books of Scripture, you have the Mosaic Law revealed. You have the Lord giving the Mosaic Law to His people. And the people receiving it and hearing it And some responding with belief in the Lord and some rejecting the Lord even in the midst of this. But you have the Apostle Paul referencing the fact that the people of Israel were those who valued the Mosaic Law, but what was happening was they misapplied it. They were misapplying it. They were convinced that they could obtain righteousness by keeping the law perfectly while also adding additional requirements of their own. And there's some interesting things that you could read about some of the additional requirements that people during the era of Christ's earthly ministry were trying to add to the Mosaic Law. And it's like they kept adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. But what they were doing was they were failing to obtain the righteousness that they sought because righteousness cannot be obtained by keeping the letter of the law. We don't have the ability to do it perfectly. And since we can't do it perfectly, when we break any aspect of it, Scripture tells us that we're then guilty of breaking the entire thing. And the Apostle Paul was saying that there were those who were trying to obtain divine righteousness through keeping the letter of the law, which they were incapable of doing, because true righteousness is granted to those who trust in the Lord, not to those who persist in the false belief that we can obtain perfection through self-righteousness. 
Self-righteousness does not lead to perfection. Self-righteousness does not lead us to the righteousness of God. What it does is it produces a heart within us that learns to trust in ourselves instead of trusting in the one who gives salvation as an act of grace. And when a person persists in false beliefs, when they persist in trusting themselves and in their own righteousness, and when they reject the opportunity to walk by faith in the Lord, their heart hardens. Their heart hardens. And Scripture cautions us not to harden our hearts against the Lord. And this Scripture in particular indicates that the Lord Himself at times will harden the hearts of those who persist in their unbelief. Now, have you ever experienced the the effects of a hard heart? Think about this from a personal standpoint. It's easier to point at other people and say, oh, their hearts, hearts were so hard and you know, they were dealing with it. But have you personally ever experienced the effects of a hard heart? And if so, how did it work out? Was it pleasant? Was it unpleasant? I like what we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15. It says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Scripture tells us time and time again, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. But what happens? You know, if we go through a season of life where we decide to primarily walk by sight, if we persist in false belief, if we start to trust in our own righteousness instead of recognizing that the righteousness of Christ is sufficient for us and the only way we could truly obtain righteousness, what ends up happening is our faith in ourselves becomes that false belief that leads to a hardened heart. And I've gone through seasons of life where I have actively hardened my heart without initially realizing it. And in fact, one was within the past couple years. And I started to realize that toward a particular person, my heart was hardening. I'd been deeply offended by somebody. Somebody had done something that offended me and offended my family. And when you're offended, if you're anything like me, you try and tell yourself you're not offended, at least initially, and then you have to admit to yourself, no, I'm, I'm offended. <laughs> and then, you, then I think the pattern I follow is, all right, I go from offended to then avoidant, right? It's like, all right, avoid that person, to then defensive, right? So offended, avoidant, defensive. And then you realize that you're not extending grace or forgiveness toward the person that offends you. And before you know it, you're in a spot where your heart is hard toward them. And that's an unpleasant thing because then when your heart hardens toward that person, as much as you try not to think about them, what you end up doing is you think about them all the time. And every day that your heart is hard, you relive the offense and you play it over again in your mind and over again in your mind and over again in your mind. And I remember one day sitting here in my office praying about this and just praying to the Lord, Lord, help me not to persist in this. When he finally, when he opened my eyes to this and made it clear to me that I needed to actively take steps to forgive this person. Now, mind you, this person had not repented of what they had done. They had not sought to apologize. They hadn't apologized to my family. They didn't apologize to me. They were persisting in their activity. But the forgiveness that I was called by the Lord to extend had nothing to do with whether they persist in their activity or not. The Lord does not want me or you or any of us to live with a hard heart. And just as He showed forgiveness toward me when I certainly didn't deserve it, 
If I'm calling, you know, if, if I'm saying, all right, I'm a child of God, I'm part of His family, the Holy Spirit lives within me. Christ has marked me as one of His own. And yet I won't extend forgiveness towards somebody because I'm waiting for them to deserve it. At that point, I don't seem to understand grace very much. Because grace is undeserved favor. So as a recipient of favor that I didn't deserve, should I not show favor toward others who don't deserve it? I should show favor as well. And so I thought, all right, you know what? I'm still kind of mad. But I think what I need to do is I need to begin praying. I need to make it part of my daily routine instead of stewing in my anger to begin praying for this person. And I'm going to pray for him every day. And I watched as the Lord softened my heart. And it was very helpful. And I think that that's what the Lord wants us to do. He doesn't want us to persist with a hard heart in any area. Because a hard heart is the fruit of self-righteousness. But there are plenty of people in this world, us included, at times we have wrestled with this, there's still plenty of people in this world who unfortunately will spend their entire lives nursing a hard heart. And Paul's making reference to some of this here in this passage. And in some contexts, this hard-heartedness actually results in people rejecting Christ's offer of salvation. A person's heart could be so hard that they just completely reject Christ's offer of salvation. They'll reject the opportunity to extend forgiveness, and they'll reject the extension of forgiveness toward them. Because they really worship the God of their own self-righteousness, which therefore, if you preach that message to your mind, results in you thinking, you don't even need forgiveness. Because you've already declared yourself self-righteous. And then you start realizing, or you start telling yourself, I guess I don't even need forgiveness. And if you don't even think you need forgiveness, you're not going to be a recipient of the forgiveness that's offered to you. You won't accept that gift because you're convinced it's a gift for somebody else and you don't need it. And there are some who persist with a hard heart because of that. And that's what Paul's addressing here in these verses. But then he jumps to verses 11 and 12, and he tells us that some will see the truth before others do. Look at what he says in verse 11 here, and verse 12. He says, so I ask. And he's applying this, by the way, to the people of Israel, his people. He's saying, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, How much more will their full inclusion mean? Beautiful portion of Scripture. Um, I don't know if you guys have noticed this just traveling here on the road in front of the church, Uh, but where there are fields here in Bucks County, there there are deer. There are literal bucks, right? And uh, I was driving uh, last week down the road here, I think it was probably about 6.30 in the evening, and I was driving home from church. And as I got just before the light down here, I hadn't yet slowed down. Uh, The light was, I believe it was still green, so I was just traveling at the normal pace here. All of a sudden, I caught right in front of me the sight of a deer. It had run out from the left and run out right in front of my car. And I held the wheel, and I slammed on the brakes. I didn't want to swerve. 
But I didn't want to hit the deer either, and I just slammed on the br- I just got those brakes too, right? You know, already they're going to have like this flat spot on them from this. But I guess that's why I bought them, right? I, I just bought them a month ago. I slammed on the brakes, and I'm holding the, holding the wheel tight, and my car stopped right before the deer. In fact, it, it actually looked like my, the, my front bumper kind of just like brushed like the fur of the deer just a little bit, but didn't do any damage, didn't scratch the car, dent the car, didn't even hurt the deer. It was like, like, like microscopic, the distance between me and that deer. And I was glad that I saw it, but I also think that if I had some passengers with me, you know, someone sitting in the back, someone sitting in the front that maybe was looking out the side, they probably would have saw it before I did and maybe would have even said something. Have you ever had that? When you, do you ever play that game when you're in a car? And do you ever feel a little bit superior if you see deer before those that you're with see it? It's like, oh, you didn't see that? I saw that. You know, I saw it. It's a good thing I saved your life right now. It's a good thing you had, had me with you. you know, I saw the deer. It's a shame that you're not, well, I, that I'm focused on the road in front of me, right? That I'm not staring to the right or to the left into the fields. Um, but if I had somebody with me, you know, if my wife was with me, if my kids were with me, if I wasn't alone, they may have seen that deer before I did and could have warned me before it was right there in front of me. It would have been to my benefit. And I was thinking about that when looking at these verses, even though they don't seem directly correlated, but when you think about it, what this Scripture is telling us is that salvation operates in a similar fashion in the sense that there are those who will see their need for it before others will. There are some who will see it first before others do. And so Paul mentions here that the Gentile nations are presently, so he's speaking of the era of history that we live in right now, They are presently seeing the truth of how salvation is obtained before the majority of the descendants of Israel are, even though salvation was offered to Israel first. But just as he stressed in Romans 10, Paul also is making it clear here that part of God's plan, because he loves Israel, is to make Israel jealous by allowing them to observe the ways God's blessing those from the Gentile nations who trust in Christ first. And what Paul's saying here is that Israel's rejection of Christ has resulted in blessings for the Gentiles who are being divinely enabled to see their need for Jesus Christ first. And he also says that if basically here, if the failure of the children of Israel to see this need results in blessings for others, How much more will the world experience blessing when they finally see their need too? He's saying, you know, if if the Lord's choosing to bless the Gentile nations to ultimately make the people of Israel jealous so that they see their need also, so if in this season of rejecting the world's being blessed, how much more will the world experience blessing when the people of Israel also recognize Christ as their Messiah as well? In fact, Scripture makes it clear that it's always been God's plan, and it's always been God's desire to unite believing Jews and believing Gentiles into one new body. And what's that body called? It's called the church, and it's comprised of everyone who trusts in Christ, regardless of heritage, regardless of background, and regardless of who accepted the invitation first. So some see it first and some see it later, but regardless of who accepted the invitation first, all who trust in Christ, Scripture tells us, are united into one new body called the church. In fact, in Ephesians 2, verses 13 down to verse 16, it says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He's talking about the divisions that have often occurred between uh, Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying, no, look at what the Lord's seeking to do. Seeking to rescue those from Gentile nations. And then seeking to rescue those from uh, the nation of Israel. And unite them into one body, the church. And the Scripture uses this phrase here. It says, and might reconcile us both to God. That's a beautiful concept that's defined in the first verse. It's the idea of taking, it says, but now in Christ you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Saying we're reconciled. That's the idea of reconciling. You know, when you think about conflict that you've had with other people that you know, it's the idea of, you know, they were once far away from you, but now you've reconciled. You've brought them near. And that's what the Lord's doing for us. That's what God's doing for us through Jesus Christ. He's taking those of us who were once far away and He's bringing us near. And He's saying, "You're now well, through faith in Christ, you are welcome into My presence. Through faith in Christ, I make you righteous. Through faith in Christ, I bestow grace upon you. Through faith in Christ, I make you part of My kingdom forever. Through faith in Christ, your sins are washed away and you're completely cleansed and you're part of My family. And God tells us, and He speaks through the Apostle Paul, and He says that reconciliation happens through Jesus Christ. And some will see the truth before others do. But then Paul says one more thing in the Scripture we're looking at today, and that's this. Some will come to faith at a later time. Some will come to faith a little bit later. Look at verse 13 down to verse 16 of Romans 11. It says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, I look forward to the day when the prophetic words of this passage will be fulfilled. And the day is coming when all those who are in Christ, anyone who trusts in Christ is going to be raised from death and blessed with new glorified bodies and enabled to live in His presence for all eternity. And the Scripture tells us that the, the people that the Lord first began working through are going to come to faith in Him. And they're going to be made holy. And then the branches that have been grafted in are going to be made holy as well. And in the meantime, what has the Lord called us to do as those who have come to faith in Him already? He's called us to represent Him as His ambassadors and to spread the fragrance of Christ wherever He calls us. I love what it tells us in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter... Uh, oh, I guess I didn't put a, a slide for it. I'll, save, I'll read it here for my notes. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, it says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death. 
and to another a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? A fragrance. Um, I don't have my son's permission to share this, so I hope he'll forgive me. I usually try to ask if I'm going to use somebody as an example, but I don't have his permission. So it is what it is. I may have a a, a payment I have to make for this. I should probably treat him to something. Um, I think he's helping out downstairs, though. So if that's the case, he doesn't need to know, okay? But a while ago, uh, my sons and I, we we were out shopping, and we were in Walmart. And do you ever go through the fragrance section in Walmart? And uh, this is years ago. This might be like three or four years ago. And, uh, and the guys were, were like, hey, you know, can we get, you know, I usually wear cologne or something like that. Some people like cologne, some people hate it. I usually like it. And, uh, and so they were like, hey, Dad, can we get something too? I was like, sure, let's see what they have. And there's some really good designer imposter colognes, you know, where you could spend two bucks and get something that smells like the $50 bottle. And I came across something. And I smelled it. I was like, this smells like really good. It smells just like the real thing. And it was like $2. And I was like, guys, do you like this? And they smelled it. And they're like, oh, this smells really good. And I was like, all right, let's buy a couple bottles. of it. And I was disappointed. There were only two bottles. I wanted there to be a third. I was like, I'd wear that too. I, but there were only, only two. And I was like, all right, four bucks, two bottles, right? You would, you would think that it would smell like, like cleanser or something like that, right? You know, like Ajax. But no, it smelled like the real thing. So one of my sons recently said to me, he's like, hey, I'm starting to run out of that. And dad, I'm, he's like, I'm not kidding. Everywhere I go, people tell me, you smell good. <laughs> and you look at what the Scripture says. It's like you're the, it, it describes those who trust in Christ as the fragrance of Christ. Now to some, you're the smell of death because you remind them of Christ and they've rejected Him. That's what it says, right? To some, that's the smell of death. To, other, to others, it's a reminder of the life we have in Christ. But again, what's the Lord doing? He's spreading that fragrance around that others would come to believe. And again, it's said multiple times here in chapter 11, but it was also said in chapter 10, this idea of making those who at this point don't believe jealous of those who are experiencing life under the blessing and under the provision of God. Jealousy doesn't look pretty among us very much, does it? Um, that same son that was telling me this also told me this is where I might really get in trouble. Um, He made mention to me, he said, you know, the other day I was walking down the hallway in school and a girl came up to me and was really hanging on my arm. And uh, I was like, really? He's like, yeah, she's really hanging on my arm. And I'm like, okay, not sure what we're doing here, but I guess we'll just walk. And he's like, "Why why are you doing this? And then he found out later that she was trying to make her ex-boyfriend jealous by hanging on my son's arm and being seen walking through the hallway. And he's like, okay, noted. I will not be a pawn in your jealousy game. But you look here, you know, Scripture says, all right, the Lord's spreading a fragrance of, of Christ through His people. And He's making other people jealous. And what's He doing? He's trying to help people that don't see to see so that they will say, I want that too. I want that too. I want to experience that kind of blessing. I want to experience the presence and the blessing of God in my day-to-day life. I want to see what this is like. I want to walk under His protection and provision too. Now again, not everybody's going to come to faith in Christ under our timetable. But don't lose hope. 
The Lord's orchestrating a great harvest of belief. And there are people that we are right now waiting to come to faith in Christ who absolutely will. Large groups of people, people that you know and that I know. I have watched during the course, so I'm 42 years old right now. And I remember, you know, decades ago, praying for certain people in my family that seemed so distant from the Lord that I've watched one at a time as the Lord continues to pick them off. One at a time as they come to faith in Christ. And then my wife and I got married and I started joining her and praying for people in her family that seemed so distant from the Lord. And one at a time we've been watching over the course of our life as the Lord's like, you're mine and you're mine and you're mine. One at a time as they're coming to faith in Christ. And I remember growing up, I became serious about my faith in Christ when I was 15 years old. And I began praying for my friends in high school and and friends that I grew up with in my neighborhood. And what am I watching now in my 40s? One at a time, I'm watching the Lord say, you're mine and you're mine and you're mine as they're coming to faith in Christ. So these things don't always happen according to my timetable and they don't always happen according to your timetable. Some people see early and some people catch on later. But if there are people that you've been praying about and praying for that as of yet have not come to faith in Christ, the only encouragement that I could truly give you in the midst of this is keep praying and keep trusting that God's timing and circumstances are perfect. His sheep hear His voice. They will come to Him. Christ remains faithful. His children will answer His call. Let me finish us up by reading from John 10, 27 and 28. Jesus said, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. And thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together today to meditate on these things and to be able to think about things that You reveal to us in it. And Lord, we recognize that not everyone's going to come to faith in You. We understand that. But some will. Many will. And Lord, we also recognize that there are people in our lives, family members and friends and acquaintances and co-workers, people we grew up with, people that we're neighbors with now, that we're very impatient about Your plan for their life. But Lord, we just want to commit them to You right now. Lord, I'm sure that the majority of us gathered together in this room have someone that comes to mind when we think about this. There's someone in our friend group or someone in our family that we've been praying will see their need for salvation through faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we lift up those people. We lift up those names. We pray that, that, Father, in accordance with Your will and in Your perfect timing, that they would come to faith in You. And if it be soon, we rejoice in that. And if it be later, we rejoice in that as well. But we do pray for their salvation. And we rejoice in the things that are revealed to us here in Romans chapter 11 where You talk about the fact that there are people that You began Your work with that maybe for a season are rejecting Your Son, Jesus Christ, but in the future will receive Him. And there are those that You started working with next that are coming to faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ, who have the privilege to be the fragrance of Christ in the midst of this world. 
that might even provoke some holy jealousy among those that you started working with first so that they too would see their need for Christ and that we have the privilege to be united together in one body, the church, reconciled because of the work that your Son has accomplished. We who were far away from you have been drawn near to you through your Son. And again, Father, as we look at these things, and as you display your caring and your loving heart for all kinds of people in a portion of Scripture like this, and the lengths that you're going to to draw people unto yourself, and the lengths that you're going to to help people to open their eyes and see what they haven't been seeing, Lord, we're just struck by your compassion because none of us deserves this. There's no Gentile that deserves this. There's no child of Israel that deserves this. This is all an act of your grace because you would have been perfectly justified in casting us away from you. And yet you chose not to do that. You created us in your image. It's clear that you love us. It's clear that you want to do something in and through us. And it's clear that you want to secure a future for us. And the only way that could be accomplished... The only way your wrath could be satisfied, the only way your perfect justice could be satisfied is if one who was perfectly innocent could come and take our place. And that's what your son, Jesus Christ, did on the cross. He lived the perfect life on our behalf. He died in our place on the cross and then he rose from the grave and defeated sin and defeated Satan and defeated death. And now through faith in your son, we're reconciled to you. We're cleansed of our sin, we're forgiven, we're brought into your presence, and we're assured that nothing will ever snatch us out of your hand. So Lord, we're grateful for these things. And we just pray, Father, that those that as of yet do not know you, that they would see their need, that you'd open their eyes, and that they'd come to know you through faith in your Son. Lord, we again lift up those that we've been praying for, and we pray that you would do a miraculous work in their hearts. And that by your grace that we might even be able to see it during the course of our lifetime. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.